Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Experts Only Podcast. I'm your host, John Powers. We have a great interview today with Alaska-based Piper Foster Wilder, the CEO of 60 Hertz. Piper came to Alaska with a background in renewable energy. She served in a nonprofit space before launching her company as the Deputy Director of Renewable Energy Alaska Project. But prior to moving to Alaska, Piper uh, had been involved in another startup, uh, Amidus Controls, an Internet of Things manufacturing company in Aspen, Colorado. And while in Aspen, she also worked at Rocky Mountain Institute and served on the board uh, of the Colorado-based Solar Energy Industry Association. She's a fascinating uh character to really be leading some interesting change in, in Alaska. And in our conversation, it'll help, help you understand why uh, Alaska is the testbed for the developing world. And the, the opportunity around Microsoft or microgrids could be really interesting there. Piper, thank you so much for joining us here on Experts Only Podcast. Hi, John. Great to be with you. So you've built a really fascinating career, uh, both in uh, the nonprofit sector and the private sector. But you know, we were talking offline. You, you grew up in Colorado. So, sort of what got you interested in energy, renewable energy, and sustainability? Hmm. Well, you know, I had the good graces of working uh, one of my very first jobs at Rocky Mountain Institute. I had the opportunity to to work closely with Amory Levins uh, right in his home um, as the organization was structured at that time. And to be honest, though, it wasn't something that I'd studied at, in college or prior in, in my life. I was really caught on fire with the vision that I think so many people have been inspired with that, that Amory imparted. And sure. so from there, continued working in different energy fields, uh, primarily in Aspen at that time. So you transitioned, you know, you were so from, from Rocky Mountain Institute, you also at one point were a fellow with the uh, Berlin-based Alexander von Humboldt Foundation. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. It was, was um, why you're at Rocky Mountain or is it separate? It was a later point in life. I had after after the time at Rocky Mountain Institute worked for a family foundation, the Sopris Foundation, uh, John McBride. And he was a big enthusiast about what Europeans were doing in terms of sustainability, whether it be transportation, energy, infrastructure. And had sent me to Europe several times looking for best practices. We hosted large conferences for municipal leaders across the West talking about what these innovative ideas might look like if translated to an American West uh, landscape. And along that path ended up hearing about the Alexander von Humboldt foundation, which for many Americans is not really on the radar, but they're the largest grant maker for PhD research in the world. And uh, in certain circles, of course would be as well. Yep. If, in fact, if anybody's curious, Alexander von Humboldt, um, there's a phenomenal biography about him, but he was really one of the the first naturalists um, in the late 1700s based in Germany, but explored all around the world, was just a tremendous explorer, had categorized, botan- you know, was a botanist. I think there are more places and plants named for Humboldt um, than any other explorer in wow. there. So he, yeah, it's, it's a, a wonderful foundation based in Germany. They have a leadership fellowship that I'd heartily recommend to anyone listening. Um, that is the German chancellor, um, award. And, and that's what I had. I ended up then spending two years in Berlin, um, with a cohort of, 
um, 10 Russians and 10 Chinese and 10 other Americans. And they've since expanded the fellowship to include, I believe, Brazil and India. But we each were studying what we wanted to and and funded to do so. And and my work was in um, German land use codes to accommodate large-scale renewable infrastructure. And what was the time window? Oh, it was 2009 to 2011. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Where a lot of the ramping up was happening in the, the German space to begin with? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Any major lessons you have sort of watching that that market sort of expand the way it has and even face some challenges just because it sort of grew so fast? Well, I, I think about just a, a visceral moment when I first had arrived uh, to, to begin the line of study. It was right during Intersolar, um, which is one of the largest um, conferences in, in the world for our sector. And th- it was just beginning. And, and I'll never forget stepping into in Munich, this massive conference hall, and just the scale and professionalism of all of the companies and vendors there was epiphanal to me to see two floor display booths with, um, you know, women that were branded to match the the brands they were uh, representing. And, you know, the scale had just blown out of the water, anything I've attended before or after. And so I think that was recognizing the potency of the German feed-in tariff and what it was doing as a market maker. And then all the corresponding corporate success that came as a result of that. So it was, it was very exciting to be part of. And I, I loved my time working at, I, I, my desk was at Ecologic Institute, which is a, a well-respected think tank there. And did you go from Germany back to Aspen? Returned to Aspen, um, worked for a Department of Energy uh, funded initiative for energy efficiency, and then quickly moved on to a startup company there called Amatis Controls, which is an internet of things uh, manufacturer uh, and we helped develop the first cost-effective heat meter, which is relevant for the solar thermal sector. So I opened the European market for Amatis for this heat meter, um, was employee number two, helped develop uh, wow. you know, everything from our, our logo and business cards um, right on down to, to product specification, market discovery. And I loved it. It was, I think that was my first taste of being really part of a startup. And it's so intoxicating. Yeah, it sounds like you've, you've, you've sort of run, rode the train before, right? So <laughs> know where some of, the, some of the challenges are. When you, you know, what then triggered the move to Alaska? Well, love, yeah, for better or worse. So, yeah. <laughs> so I had uh, Aspen is spectacular and I, I was sure that would be the rest of my life. But when I met my husband, Nathaniel, he's a commercial and editorial photographer, um, had grown up in Alaska, was based there. And I was quite, this, this is a trend, me being quite sure of things that ultimately end up being wrong. I was quite sure <laughs> that Daniel would live with me happily ever after in Aspen. But within within three months, we were um, in a rented huge white van with all of my belongings driving the Alcan North. Um, it was a good moment in life for me to transition. Uh, anyone who's been part of a startup company knows that that can be very fulfilling, um, uh, but also exhausting work. So I was ready to take a step yeah. back. And um, had found a wonderful job with a nonprofit in Anchorage, the Renewable Energy Alaska Project. And upon arriving here, that was September of 2015, was invigorated to work with Chris Rose, the, the director, and really discover the energy landscape in a place that, though, is part of the U.S. Anyone who's been here or spent a lot of time knows it's it's just a little left of the U.S., a little right of the U.S. You know, the same way when we go to Canada, you start noticing a lot of differences that are subtle. Right. And um, that was 
very stimulating right off the bat, frustrating at times too in Alaska, but I recognized all kinds of opportunity that I wanted to get involved in. Yeah, we, you know, one of the things we talked about offline, I want to sort of bring back in. You, I was reading a recent interview with you, and I want to flash back to an earlier episode of Experts Only. I was interviewing uh, Ethan Zindler from Bloomberg New Energy Finance, and he talked about the market, uh, the clean energy market, the renewable market here in the U.S. It, you know, it, as it began to mature, you literally went to, from conferences of, of folks in denim with with uh, men with ponytails to business suits, right? And it began to re- sort of reflect the maturing of the industry. And you were talking about in Anchorage how you know here the lower forty eight, we you know that that uh, maturations happened, right? But the renewable space up there is still really sort of really fighting its way into maturity. Is that some of the best way to put it? I, I would agree. I would agree. Even though there's some fantastic flagship projects that have been enormously successful that are, you know, backed by incredible investors, um, the, they're really, uh, I would say, the the birds, beards and Birkenstocks iteration of that is, I think, still the, the cloak that renewables wear in Alaska. And that's in large part because the fossil industry is so dominant, is so persuasive in terms of an economic driver in the state that there just hasn't been a lot of room for renewables. That said, the state has phenomenal metrics on investment in renewable energy. Um, People may know that Alaska inaugurated the Renewable Energy Fund in 2008, which is entirely composed of state appropriations. I think uh, between 2008 and 2015, they had allocated $260 million for investment in renewable energy, which is the greatest sum per capita in the country. Um, really? That fund, yeah, it's exciting. It's it's uh, incarnated as sixty eight different investments in, in renewable infrastructure, largely hydropower, a lot of wind, ninety million in wind, a whopping five hundred uh, five hundred thousand in in solar. So the solar has just been um, excluded and really off the map, which we oh, can talk more about. But yeah. the the dominant um, investment really has been in village scale wind and some. Yeah, rail belt, as it's known, the population centers, um, hydropower that, that has right. served the, those communities. Well, so I think you know my background, and you know I used to work uh, within the Pentagon, and and you know we always looked at these military bases a lot as sort of as communities, right? Where uh, you literally educate a community that you know we had the opportunity to really run with some interesting, innovative things with ideas around microgrids and energy management and storage and renewables and electric vehicles, all sort of in a contained environment. Uh, but the reality is that contained environment still rolled off into a massive utility that was part of the village or, or city that the, the base was next to. In Alaska, you're in a place where many of these rural communities are those same locked in, uh, you know, forward operating bases, we call them in the military. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, what sort of caught your interest in the, the need for microgrids there and, you know, what are you seeing sort of on the ground? And then with that, I want to talk a little bit about the development of sort of 60 hertz through that experience. Mm. So Alaska has had the longest experience operating microgrids in the world. And I think a lot of people don't realize that the state, because it's two and a half times the size of Texas, that there are only 16,000 miles of roads in this massive area, and only 30% of those are paved. The state is largely undiscovered. So we have 200 villages scattered across the state. These are largely Alaska Native communities. And they have had 
good old diesel powerhouses for decades. And that's what we have now all come to excitingly sexily call a microgrid. So I'd say the state has been sort of well-positioned, but not intentional about having this microgrid operating experience. But nonetheless, the black eyes, the hard lessons, the failure stories are a rich laboratory for anyone who cares about the emergence of this sector. And so from my desk at the Renewable Energy Alaska Project, hearing stories about communities that were paying on average 62 cents a kilowatt hour for electricity, $10 per gallon for heating oil, I really began asking, you know, why and how is the Renewable Energy Fund ultimately improving the situation? And and what about these failure stories? Um, There are epic stories of the state flying in with a Black Hawk helicopter in the middle of the night, a backup generator for a community of, you know, 50, 80 people, maybe 100 people, because no maintenance had taken place on on that diesel generator. And so why was that happening? Why was, why was I hearing stories about this? And, and how could that situation be remedied? So as I began learning more, like what the state's emergency response budget for power failure would be, how they were backstopping these communities, the general organization of um, these independent villages, you know, I think some, some facts are helpful here. So the state spends um, just under half a million dollars a year backstopping being sort of the utility of last resort. This is through the Alaska Energy Authority, helping communities that, again, are going to be far less than a megawatt of demand, probably closer to even 150 kilowatts. Wow. Um, serving for the whole pop- community. For the whole community. For the yeah, whole community. That's incredible. So you'll see a population of between, you know, at the smallest, probably 15, 16, 25 people um, up to hub villages of which there are five that have about 5,000 people. But really, these are sparsely populated areas, totally disconnected from roads, disconnected from certainly a natural gas line. Fuel is barged in once a year. That shipment is very brittle. Yeah. So like, don't run out because you will not have power. Um, there are 10 communities that we fly fuel into. So that's where you're really getting into the closer a dollar kilowatt hour range. And so what that looks like for the state to be maintaining these sites and therefore for a local person to be responsible for keeping the lights on, people would be shocked to discover this is the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about sort of the opportunity around microgrids to be sort of over, you know, marketplace of over 30 billion, right? And you you guys are looking, just looking at some of the information you guys provided regarding, you got, in Alaska alone, you've got 200 native villages. There's, 14, was it 1,400 indigenous villages across, across the Arctic? Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously very remote, remote challenges. So what sort of in that challenge sort of got you excited about creating sort of 60 hertz? And then what is 60 hertz? Like where... How has the company sort of developed? Yeah, yeah. Well, so so I'll tell you the genesis story. I, I began wondering how uh, renewable energy could better be funded in addition to the state grant. And curious that all of the investment tax credit um, that these projects were spinning off were being uh, forgotten and left untouched because they were largely funded by grants. So I wondered if I could start a company that would be the bridge, uh, kind of a boutique broker between off-grid, um, renewable energy, boutique scale, small, you know, this is less than $2 million CapEx, um, and investors that had an interest. Um, and could we, could we efficiently aggregate those sites and serve as the broker? Well, very quickly discovered that investors were squeamish about that proposition, knowing about the operations and maintenance failures. 
So could we develop a, a platform or a software? Was there something available on the market that would help better optimize the, uh, microgrid maintenance and ensure that investors' assets were protected? And I was asking a question that I now know a lot of people all over the world have been asking, but hadn't, hadn't really been solved. So we surveyed the market there in this breed of software there, uh, which is called computerized maintenance management software. There are, of course, big players like IBM's Maximo. And the way we use digital technology to maintain things, that's a solved problem. What wasn't solved, what wasn't addressed was how you would deploy a software platform for a village scale user with low bandwidth to no bandwidth in terms of cellular connectivity where the boss was distributed, wasn't sitting on site with that individual, and where you had huge issues of operator turnover, job retention, um, English may not be the first language, even even glasses. You haven't seen an optometrist in a while, so could they even see the font on a digital interface? Right, right. So we decided we needed to develop our own. And for 20, between 27, the company started officially, uh, you know, we were staffed up by July of 2017 and ran these two lines of business, exploring the software development as well as project finance. In the time since, I've recognized that the growth trajectories and business form of these lines of business are different enough that we've split off the project finance activity into its own LLC called Leica Energy. And 60 Hertz is the computerized maintenance management solution a software solution for microgrid maintenance. What we've discovered is that in Alaska, the lessons learned, the black eyes on microgrid maintenance actually apply to urban resiliency grids, to, of course, islanded grids all over the world on true right. islands. Um, so, so village scale lessons and village scale solutions actually work quite well for a much broader swath of microgrids, of course, including mines, military, um, and all of the more conventional urban microgrids. That's how our solution started. Fascinating. And so as the, as, well, first of all, talk about splitting off the financing piece and what sort of drove that and, and how is that sort of managed in parallel to the software side? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, um, we had... We had hosted a contest in August of 2017 to test the market and see if there was actually interest in a power purchase agreement or if communities, remote sites would prefer to wait for grant funding or take out a loan. And in 30 days, received over 30 applications. So wow. that was the great proof of concept. And okay, there's, there is demand for assistance and financing, structured finance. I then vetted those sites. We have a proprietary power purchase agreement um, calculating model and started coming up with value propositions, um, also determining which of the sites would be a good investment risk or not. And so that pipeline um, is, is standing by. Um, the rate of deal flow, of course, in a remote place, uh, business development is expensive, and um, we, we have this opportunity. I stood up like a in September of last year, because the the growth pattern and investor interest, the really was favoring a more scalable venture venture backable business, which is what software is. Right. Um, the development fees that we can earn off of each project for Leica Energy are what a, a colleague calls pleasantly boring revenue. Yeah. <laughs> you know that's fine. So so Leica is stood up, and we have. Um, two projects in the hopper for 2019. I sure hope that those accelerate and we get more. Um, but essentially, that is its own separate entity, so that um, my team and I can focus uh, on on 60 hertz growth. 
Interesting. And so as so let's go back to 60 Hertz growth and, and you guys are part of a program called Launch Alaska. Um, can you talk a little bit about Launch Alaska? And then also, you know, what I found really interesting is you also work closely with sort of the Village Electric Cooperative. Matter of fact, I think they're actually an investor, right? In That's right. Yeah. The company. So you know, how, how is that partnership uh, working? And, you know, are they helping on things like pilots and, and you know, trying to really... Uh, some proof of concept on the technology. Yeah, John, that's right. That's right. So Launch Alaska is a relatively new uh, business accelerator. It's part of the GAN, the Global Accelerator Network, and they're in their fourth cohort. We were happy to happy to be part of the second. Um, Launch Alaska is discovering fascinating companies working in unconventional spaces. You know, I think for investors looking for the next new deal, and there's certainly an appetite for looking outside of Silicon Valley, um, the, the problems that Alaskans face are unique, uh, are often overlooked, and are replicable in a much larger scalable market. Um, I always say that Alaska is a proxy for the developing world. So solutions that we pioneer yeah, here without currency risk, where it's a lot cheaper to travel, um, really play well and apply. To a, to a larger global context. So for 60 Hertz, it's been a perfect place for us to be pioneering our solution, testing our solution. Um, I would just put in a, a plug for Launch Alaska that the even though they are a new startup program, um, they're really meeting or even exceeding a lot of the averages for, for uh, a business accelerator. 55% of their companies are earning revenue now, which is uh, equal to the average GAN startup. And um, 55% of the portfolio companies portfolio companies have a female CEO like me. And that's a really awesome factor about Alaska. You have a ton of women in leadership positions such that it's not even, I think, newsworthy here, though we're being asked and getting coverage um, nationwide about that. So during our time at Launch Alaska, of course, an accelerator helps you discover your market, helps you refine your value proposition, and helps with that proof of concept. And an invaluable learning for us and I'll say for me personally, is that many startups fail because the market appetite that the entrepreneur is so positive exists is often not there. Right. So we did a lot of testing and small-scale proofs. Um, what that looked like was job shadowing, conducting expert interviews, um, doing paper prototyping of our software. We interviewed and, and worked with 50 individuals in 2017 and across the U.S. and Canada to really refine and get a sense of what that minimum viable product of our software should look like and do. That was developed uh, between December and January of 2017-2018. Um, and then we launched to 14 communities, a free pilot with 30 operators, and ran that pilot from February to May of last year. Alaska Village Electric Cooperative, which is by landmass the largest utility in the country, it's a rural co-op, um, is, was one of our major partners during that pilot, as well as a native-serving nonprofit called Tanana Chiefs Conference. And so the feedback we got from that initial circle of operators, um, what things didn't work, what things they liked, what things needed a lot of prodding, um, some of the success stories. We, we have a feature called Operator Forum, which is like Facebook for the operators. And on it, one of our operators right within the first 10 days of the pilot said, hey, I need some help reordering glycol for this diesel generator, and I don't know what, what to do about this, and how about some O-rings? And quickly, others were able to chime in on the platform and help him. And that was a major victory for us. 
because it's validating a thesis that you have actually very responsible, diligent operators, which was contrary to prevailing belief. You have responsible, diligent operators who don't know they're important and don't have a network and don't have any professional support. They are out by themselves. And so this is a beautiful way that technology can bring that solution um, to people that are otherwise not at all served by technology. So, so taking that pilot concept, what do you sort of see as, as next steps for, for 60 Hertz? And then, you know, I want to talk for, at the end sort of for a second about you know, just the future of the microgrid space in general. Mm-hmm. So we, um, by, by the end of the pilot in June, asked each of our partners, would you pay for this? And they all said yes, which was a huge victory. So at that point, began raising the venture capital to grow. But needing to move forward in the process of the raise, I took out a $100,000 loan, which I've guaranteed myself, to develop now this fuller version, version two of our software, which is rolling out this February. Um, we conducted design process, really fabulous, um, called human-centered design, brought an anthropologist, did in-depth interviews with numerous users to refine our feature set and settled on eight features that are now incarnated in the platform. Our user interface is therefore living up to our value prop of working for low literacy, low training, providing on-demand, on-the-job training. And we're just really enthusiastic about the feedback we're getting from this early circle of users. And we are deploying to the first 25 communities on the Alaska Village Electric Cooperatives network. I wouldn't say grid because these are not connected places um, in their network. And that's taking place in uh, February, March, and April of this year. Wow. I mean, it's amazing to think about the utility as, you know, just a plethora of many utilities within it, right? That they're, they're trying to manage. And here you guys are, I think, with a really interesting potential to, to expand and grow. And then how do we take the lessons you're learning in Alaska? I love the way you sort of framed it. It's a great learning place for the rest of the developing world, both the developing world, but also, you know, the, the developed island, island communities. There's, there's so much potential to take these lessons and bring you know, bring, bring microgrids out to where it needs to be. Cause I think for a long time people have talked about it and, you know, you've had concepts and you had individual, you know, you've got Apple building the new headquarters and you've got, you know, military bases, but you know, the, the actual market's just still nascent and growing. Like where do you sort of see it in five years? Mm, absolutely. Well, you know, I think learning from PG&E's disastrous experience, unfortunately, um, I, my prediction is that we'll see urban community scale microgrids popping up. Jigger Shaw referenced microgrids recently as um, an extreme solution or a solution of last resort. And um, I don't know that it's, it's quite that dramatic. I would also note that the Alaskan experience has shown that integrating renewables into microgrids is not as easy as it sounds. Right. So exporting the knowledge base that we have here, uh, I would yeah, really encourage microgrid developers to look at, at what's happening in Alaska and what lessons we've learned. Um, and for 60 hertz growth prospects, we certainly see urban resiliency gl- grids, critical infrastructure, let alone villages globally, let alone island island states um, that that are anticipating development in terms of microgrids. I think that that's really a huge growth sector for us. And I'll also add that Microgrids are in more places than people may recognize are are what we call non-traditional microgrids being an ocean-going vessel, railroad, an airplane. These are all microgrids too, um, where we see our solution um, having a footing. Interesting. So first of all, exciting stuff you've got going on. And obviously 
game changing and hopefully we can you know find a way to to sort of see it scale up here in the, the coming years because we need it both to address the energy security needs of folks uh, in these communities but also to you know address climate change as it's continuing to to uh, to rear its ugly head and it's mm-hmm. only going to be getting worse but if you could so step back to you know growing up in Colorado for a second and you know you're you're graduating from high school or graduating from college and if you sat down with yourself and had a cup of coffee, you know, what piece of advice would you give uh, to young Piper? Gosh, I really appreciate that question, John. I've never, I've never thought about that. I think what's, I think what my last, my last years have been showing me is just um, how important it is to, to do all we can to cultivate a broad base of skills early. What I would say right now is the endeavor to launch a startup demands that the founder be a Renaissance person, which is of course an impossible standard. Like we can't all be excellent at building relationships and coding software and running your finances and keeping track of piddly admin, but just the, the, the range of things you need to be excellent at to be successful. If this is the category that someone wants to pursue may be impossible. And I think that's why the startup failure rate is so high but nonetheless, the endeavor, as I said to you right at the beginning, the endeavor of trying is so exciting and so energizing. And I would wish this on, on anyone that they have the opportunity to, to build something and to start something, whether it's a granola company or right. solving energy problems, um, that, that this really, I am very bullish on social change through startups, um, and at the risk of offending people that I love, I would even say social change um, may be better achieved through some startups than nonprofits because the, the market pressure to achieve revenue and ensure that your solution is actually a fit for the market compels a, a, an activism and energy that I would say few other distinctions in life demand. And yeah, I feel like, first of all, that's uh, I really appreciate the comments. I feel like that, you're exactly right. And I feel like there's capital, so much more capital needs to move outside of the coasts into places like Alaska and Buffalo and, and, uh, you know, and Nashville and, and places that aren't Silicon Valley, because we're going to be able to empower more and more entrepreneurs to do more. Mm-hmm. Uh, a good friend of mine who is also uh, a kid I grew up with also running a startup told me recently said he feels like every day he wakes up and uh, his roommate, in college is telling him he's got an exam and he didn't study for it. So it's <laughs> a new thing to learn every day, whether it be HR or <laughs> doing the, doing the, the financials, you know, versus just the vision of the company. So I couldn't agree with that more. In fact, I had been, I had said to somebody recently, I think, I think 60 Hertz for me is like falling in love and finals week. You're right. All at once. <laughs> well, Piper, thank you so much. I really appreciate the conversation. John, it's an honor to be with you. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us at Experts Only Podcast. As always, you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. If you have any ideas for new interviews, please let me know. Uh, we're always looking for interesting folks to talk to. I'd like to thank our producers, Emily Connor and Lauren Glickman, for your great work. And as always, look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.